The scripture reading for today is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. We're in Ephesians for first half of this year, and one of the things I've been trying to emphasize is how much encouragement is in these first three chapters. Uh, We're in Ephesians for encouragement and exhortation both, and that's roughly how the the book uh, breaks into two parts. It's six chapters, and the first three chapters, mostly encouragement, what God has done for us, and then the last three chapters, exhortations, what we are to do in response. And that's um, what we're, we're looking at for the first half of this year. Now, to say that the first three chapters are full of what's been done for us, there's really nothing for us to do in the first three chapters except receive what God has done for us. To say that, that the first three chapters is primarily about encouragement, uh, doesn't mean there aren't applications There are applications from the encouragements that we're given. I'll actually give you a few at the end of the message. But the emphasis in biblical encouragement is on what God has done. It always begins from what God has done and carries through what God has done until God completes his work uh, in us as he will. And you know, when you you have a faith as ours uh, that emphasizes what God has done, Just as a by the way here, that's really remarkable when you consider uh, world religions. In the dominant world religions, the burden is on the would-be disciple to get God's approval for himself or herself. God's approval, if it's a monotheistic religion, or the God's, plural, approval, if it's a polytheistic religion, but not Christian faith. The burden is, uh, is on God. The burden of of not just accepting us, but also approving us. God took that burden upon himself. And there really is bottomless encouragement in that. So let's take all the encouragement we can get because it's a hard world. We live in a fearful culture 
full of suspicions and shaming people. And so the church dearly needs encouragement. And we get drenched in it here in Ephesians with all that God has done for us. Now, that said, I know that the encouragement in this particular passage that Nate just read for us, verses 11 to 22 here in Ephesians 2, I know that this particular passage gets turned into confrontation. It's often preached that way. It's a passage that's about what God has done for us, and it's ethnic in its, uh, in it, in its, uh, its cadence and its uh, scope and sequence. And so oftentimes it gets turned into confrontation, you know, like looking at verse 14, if Jesus has made us both one, ethnic context, Jew and Gentile, verse 14, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, if Jesus, verse 19, has made us fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, then how come we still find ethnic divisions and factions in the church? This passage is clearly ethnic in its scope and implications. In fact, uh, looking at verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. Gentiles is ethnos, from which we get the word ethnicity. In the biblical view, there were Jews and there was everyone else. Everyone else was the ethnos, the nations, the Gentiles. So this passage is about the interpersonal reconciliation of the gospel. Now, this is really important for us to understand because we are always in danger of having a one-sided gospel, of having half a gospel. Here's what I mean by that. The first 10 verses in this chapter, if your Bible's open to Ephesians 10, or Ephesians 2, pardon me, the first 10 verses, Ephesians 2, the first 10 verses, we looked at this last Sunday as we just moved through Ephesians passage by passage here, looking at verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2 here, remembering back to last Sunday, we saw in the first half of chapter 2 that God has fully taken care of our need to be reconciled to Him. But now we see in the second part of this chapter, verses 11 to 22, not only does God reconcile us to Himself, and that's our central need, <clears throat> but also God reconciles us with one another, moves us toward each other. Verse 14, he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one. Verses 11 to 13 introduces that it's a Jew and Gentile dynamic. He's made us one, verse 14, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So again, that's Jew and Gentile in immediate context, but the same applies, the same breaking down that God does of dividing walls of hostility, it applies to any ethnic or cultural division. Mark this down. This is what's crucial to get. If our gospel is only about reconciliation to God through Christ, and that's it, if it's only about the vertical, we're speaking the truth, we're just not speaking the whole truth. It's like we have half a gospel because the gospel also speaks in the very next breath to God reconciling dissimilar people in Christ who is himself our peace. Verse 14, you've got two axes. You've got the vertical, we need to be reconciled to God. The gospel clearly 
presents how that's done in Christ. But the gospel also keeps the horizontal. We need to be reconciled to one another. What is the vision of heaven that we're given? People from every tribe, every nation, every kindred. So this is our passage. This passage, verses 11 to 22, it's ethnic in its scope and implications. And when you think it out, why? Why should it be ethnic? Well, um, the gospel being put in ethnically equitable terms, God not preferencing one ethnicity over another. Again, think of the uniqueness of Christianity. Uh, Islam, for instance, preferences Arab culture. You have to know Arabic to understand the Quran. Uh, Hinduism and Buddhism preference Asian cultures. But the ground is level at the cross, as we say, and this is huge when you think it out because the greatest sins of humanity are ethnic in scope. Think of eugenics. Think of uh, ethnic cleansings and genocides. Think of holocausts. Think of race-based chattel slavery. Think of ethnically disproportional abortion. Think of how many wars, and there are wars going on all the time, wars we don't even know about, but how many wars are fought in the interests of one ethnic group besting another, even wiping them out, even if the people fighting look the same. The greatest sins of humanity are ethnic in scope, and so of course the gospel addresses this. Give you a couple of examples of uh, why this is important. Uh, in the late 90s, I took a couple of mission trips to the nation of Croatia. It used to be the former Yugoslavia, which was uh, a nation created out of these Balkan states, they're called, and we were in Croatia. Took a couple of trips there. And I've never forgotten, uh, it was late summer afternoon, it was a beautiful day, we were in a coastal uh, city in Croatia, just Ad Ad uh, Adriatic Sea, uh, just a beautiful place. And, and I get into this conversation with a young Croatian man in the city square. We're just sitting there and we begin talking. And all he wants to talk about is his undying hatred of Serbians. He wants me as an American to understand the Croatian viewpoint, which he believes he is representing in full. The conflict in the Balkans was passed down to this guy who was all of probably 22 from his father and from his father and their fathers before them, you must hate Serbs. And he had gotten the message. That's all he wanted to talk about. From the serious to the silly. But sometimes the silly illustrates uh, as well as the serious. I remember in my small town, our coaches made t-shirts that said, Avoid the rush. Teach your children early to hate Blowfield. Now, Blowfield was actually Winfield, down the way from us, 20 miles. But um, we called them Blowfield, deprecatingly. Rednecks hating one another, right? Very same people that we were, 20 miles away. But we have to hate them. The reason the encouragement in this passage verses 11 to 22 here, 
And what is the encouragement? What God has done in Christ to close the distance between people who might otherwise hate and avoid one another. The reason this encouragement will get turned into confrontation is because it's so good what God does for us in reconciling us to himself, it then looks so bad for us to rebuild dividing walls due to our playing up differences along ethnic or even intercultural lines where people look the same physically but have these differences nonetheless. All the ways we find or invent even to resist what God has done for us instead of receive it. It's like that parable Jesus told. You can find it in Matthew 18. Don't turn there. Just tell you about it as a, as a parallel example. Jesus told a parable once about a guy who owed a ruler an obscene amount of money. The amount of money this guy owed, it's obvious that, that he had committed uh, crimes against this ruler. And yet the ruler canceled his debt, uh, absorbed it himself, which is what forgiveness actually does. It absorbs somebody's uh, debt against you yourself and, and didn't punish the man to get it back, though the ruler had every right to punish him. And Jesus says, no sooner does that man leave that ruler's presence with all that debt cleared that he sees someone who owes him a few bucks and he goes after him mercilessly. That's similar to what it looks like if we resist the interpersonal reconciliation of the gospel. You know, I got my reconciliation with God, so what does it matter if I don't like blank people? Fill in the blank with the people you don't like, that you don't really care about. That's half a gospel. Now, we, we would never say it the way that I just said it. I got my reconciliation with God, so what about these other people? We'd never say it that way, no, but there's plenty we never say that's yet within our heart. The gospel on the horizontal parallel here, which is what this passage is about. I mean, the chapter, the chapter, chapter 2, gives you the vertical and the horizontal axes of the gospel. Verses 1 to, to 10 is the vertical. But verses 11 to 22 is the horizontal, and you've got to have both to have a full gospel. The gospel is an ethnically equalizing message. How so? Two ways both centering on Jesus, both seen in the text here, that Jesus himself is our peace, that's said in verse 14, and Jesus himself is our cornerstone, that's said in verse 20. Cornerstone being the load-bearing stone, the one on whom the church is built. A peace theme and a build theme. Here are the two headings under which to understand this passage. The church is built... Look at verse 20, verse 22. You see the emphasis on the church being built, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Verse 20, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Verse 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that same emphasis on it being Jesus himself. So verse 20 says Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Look back up at verse 14 and you get the similar language. For he himself is our peace. If you put pronouns together like that, you're emphasizing 
Verse 14, he himself is our peace. Not that Jesus has achieved peace for us. He himself is our peace. And then verse 20, he himself is the cornerstone, the load-bearing stone. So we've got a peace theme and we've got a building theme. Now let me give you an important clarification here. To say the gospel is an ethnically equalizing message, meaning it welcomes all comers from every people group. To say that doesn't mean culture no longer matters. Culture is something we make. There are many cultural fruits. Culture and ethnic variety is what makes the world beautiful in its ways. And according to the vision of heaven that I remind you of again that we get in Revelation, ethnic and cultural variety is still evident in heaven. It's perfected there beautifully. So to say the gospel is an ethnically equalizing message means inclusion and exclusion with God and his people is never a matter of where you're from or not. It's always a matter of where Jesus is from, by which I don't mean Nazareth, but he's from the Father, Jesus being God. Look at our text. This is not going to be a straight on, here's the first point, and now we'll move to the second point approach. I'm kind of mashing these together. Instead of new potatoes, this is mashed potatoes uh, kind of approach this morning. But look at the peace theme. To, to see the peace theme, that God has sent Jesus to be our peace. Uh, let me point out to you nine active verbs. And I don't usually do this. Those of you who may be listening to me for the first time, I don't usually get real tedious like this. But just watch this. There's nine active verbs, meaning the action of God. In this passage, looking at the text, it begins in verse 14, the active verbs. Verse 14, he made Jesus our peace. That's an active verb. Verse 14 also, he made us one. Active action of God. Number three, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. That's also in verse 14. Again, between Jew and Gentile, but the same applies to any ethnic or cultural division. We all come from people and places. We all come to God from out behind some dividing wall of hostility. Number four, he, he abolished the law. These are the active verbs, nine of them in this passage. He abolished the law. Number four is verse 15. Verse uh, 15 also has the fifth one. He created one new humanity. He made peace, verse 15. He reconciled, verse 16. He put to death hostility, verse 16. He proclaimed peace. Verse 17, there's your nine active verbs. I detect a peace theme. What God did for us in Christ, Jesus himself is our peace. What does peace do? It doesn't preference one over another. It preferences the one, Jesus Christ. Now, there's also five passive verbs in our passage. How we got in on this. If you're taking notes, I apologize. Number one. We are brought near. These are the passive verbs that, that get to the building theme. Number one of the five passive verbs, we are brought near. That's in verse 13. That's what God has done for us. Number two, the Spirit gives us access. Verse 18, how we got in on this, passive verbs. Number three, we are built upon the foundation. That's in verse 20. 
Number four, we are joined together. That's in verse 21. Number five, we are built together. Verse 22. In the five passive verbs, I detect a building theme. How we got in on this. God builds a church out of someone from everyone. His building materials are dissimilar people. Jesus himself being the cornerstone, load-bearing. Now, somewhere in heaven, Mrs. Rich and Mrs. Palmer, my high school English teachers, are beaming that I just gave you a tour of the verbs here. Their work took. But it's also kind of tedious, as I said, what I'm doing, going through these verbs, and you can't get all that in your notes, and you get frustrated with me, that's okay. Listen, a sermon is not a classroom. A sermon involves teaching, but it really involves a message. Get the message. And the me- sometimes when you're taking notes, you miss the message. And the message is this. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to overcoming humanity's greatest sins that are ethnic in scope, God is the center of the action. God does what we need most in the world. God acts on our behalf for our good, and he does this out of his want to. He's not reluctant. He does this out of his want to for us. He does what is necessary for us to, verse 22, become his dwelling place. Which is another remarkable thing about our faith. In most other religions, there's a temple. There's some holy place you have to go to get God. In Christian faith, the holy place is the person in whom God takes up residence. So this passage, there's a peace theme, there's a building theme. The peace theme is built out of nine active verbs of God's involvement, what God's doing. The the building theme is is built out of five passive verbs, uh, how we got in on this. We're brought in on God's peace, peace between us and him. And then God builds a church out of diverse building materials, someone from everyone, even though someone from everyone doesn't get along always. And God knows that better than anybody. Why did he do it? Because God has so arranged things that he gains the most glory for himself in making a church from all kinds of people rather than just one kind of people. God wanted to take up residence in your life and mine. And so he did himself what must be done for that to take place. He didn't put the work on us. He put the work on himself. This is Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22. God is a distance closer. He brings the far near. Jesus replaces distance with belonging. You know, most of us in this room are Gentiles, most if not all. And so again, verse 11 is addressing us. Paul, writing as a Jew, says, verse 11, remember at one time you Gentiles, you were far away, he says. You weren't absentee, you were were out. There's other places where Paul talks about the Jews were given the patriarchs and the promises and the prophets. And and, and you think about that. And when my ancestors, the Germanic tribes, 
Most of us are mongrel Gentiles from different people groups. Uh, my dominant people groups are German, Irish, and Turk. Three very angry people groups. <laughs> it's amazing I'm as calm as I am. They all cancel each other out inside of me, I guess. When my ancestors were running around naked in the forests of Europe, the Jews were handling the Word of God. What a marvelous privilege that is to have history with God like that. I was far off. Verse 13 says, I was far off, and so were you. I was far off. Why? By heritage, I was far off. I was a Gentile. By my own sin nature, the first 10 verses of this chapter establish that, I was as distant from God as distance can be. But who is God? He's a distance closer. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who were once far off, he's talking about Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then we get all those active verbs in the verses that follow, as I pointed out. Which, by the way, somebody like me should not even be pointing out to you. Somebody like me, by heritage and sin nature, should not even be handling the Word of God. And somebody like you should not even be listening to this. Except, except, except God. God in Christ Jesus brought we who were far near. And notice how, by the blood of Christ. In real time, in real flesh. And not just pagan Gentiles. Look over at verse 17. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. In context, Jews. What verse 17 is saying is that Jews also had to come to God through Jesus, not through Moses, through Jesus. This is why we say the ground is level at the cross for everyone. Verse 16, that we might be reconciled to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility which is a repeated idea from verse 14 of hostility. This is the ethnos, the ethnicities, the nations, hostile to one another, hostile within nations and within people groups as well. The hostility was between Jew and Gentile in immediate context. And yet Paul's point is relevant to all ethnicities today where hostilities still abound. And we know this is so. But what do we do about it? How do we apply this encouragement that we've been given? It's not just to admire. It is for application. Let me give you three applications to offer you in the final four minutes that I have here. This passage is encouraging because of all that God has done for us. I've tried to establish that. The verbs... The active verbs are God's action. The passive verbs, how we got brought in on this, is because of God. And yet, in receiving and not resisting, what is our application? The first application, I'll give you three. First application is this. 
we have to learn how to emphasize what we have in common in Christ. We have to emphasize what we have in common in Christ. Now, I'm going to get more into this in chapter 4, which we'll get into in the month of March. But the way forward for the church in divided times and even a divided church requires learning how to emphasize and build on what we have in common in Christ. And Ephesians gives us this. Gives us what we have in common in Christ, like how none of us made ourselves Christians. We were brought in. We owe everything to the grace and mercy of God. These are things we have in common in Christ. The next time you get sideways with another Christian or you find out that another Christian is sideways with you, you know maybe the, the first and best approach is to try to establish common ground. You know, I, I think we both love the Lord, don't we? Don't we both appreciate what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? How many conflicts or, or perceptions that are off or, or people reading in things about each other that often goes on in the church might be mitigated effectively if you just sat down and looked at each other and said, you know, Jesus loves us both, don't you? You know, he's for us both. We know that, don't we? We know that we didn't bring ourselves into this, did we? No, we, we were brought in by Jesus. Things we have in common in Christ, whether or not you have anything else in common, God, make us a church. Now, some of you are going to get irritated by me saying this, but okay. God, make us a church where Republicans and Democrats can worship together the same Lord Jesus. God, make us a church where blacks and whites can worship together the same Lord Jesus. Where people of, of different tribes and stripes can worship together the same Lord Jesus. Well, are you going to start pushing that? No, I'm not going to push it. I'm going to preach texts like this when we come to them and let the Spirit do His work. Isn't that what the text says? In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Not, not by some preacher shaming you or scolding you. The Spirit does this. It's not me you have to take this up with. It's God. If we learn to emphasize what we have in common in Christ, you know what happens? The encouragement of this passage gets into your bones. You begin to like the horizontal aspect of the gospel instead of resisting it, instead of doubling down on all our differences. I took my four minutes right there. Second application. Focus more on the greatness of God to us in Jesus Focus more on the greatness of God to us in Jesus. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells a little story about Billy Graham, the famous evangelist. At the height of the Cold War, this goes back to around 1982, Graham visited Russia. This was Cold War time. Russia was our enemy. Russia had their finger on the nuclear button, and, and we were watching movies like Red Dawn, and, you know, and we were afraid. And Graham goes to Russia. And he meets with their political and religious leaders, and he gets wildly criticized by evangelical Christians back in the United States for being conciliatory with the Russians. You're planning a, 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 a group of meetings there? 
One critic accused Billy Graham of setting the church back 50 years by meeting with the Russians, to which Graham said, then I am deeply ashamed because I've been trying very hard to set the church back 2,000 years. We are going to always be able to point to flaws and faults in the church. That is nothing new. If I've learned anything in the last two years, I can't change the church, nor can you. I can't control the people of God, and I don't seek to anymore because when I seek to control the people of God rather than serve them, I get discouraged. But when I focus more on the greatness of God to me in Jesus, I get encouragement. And that encouragement I become willing to export, <laughs> willing to share with all comers. If you're somebody who says, you know, I don't really want to, I don't really want to bring my friends into evangelical community because I'm afraid it will embarrass me. You're focused on the wrong person. Stop looking pew level. Look above. Focus more on the greatness of God to us in Jesus. A third and final application of this encouragement. Blood bought is thicker than blood born. You get it? Blood bought is thicker than blood born. More about this in other sermons to come, particularly when we get into chapter 4. But a mark of growth and progress in Jesus as your Savior and Lord is that native-born hostilities, who your granddaddy taught you to hate or be aware of, of, fearful of, avoidances of the other, whoever that is for you and for me, that's been, you, you come to realize how washed away that is. And, and, and it's never going to be held over us to condemn us again, our, our hostilities and our avoidances of the other. But you also come to realize that the blood that redeems is continuing to wash us in this way. Continuing. Our Savior on his cross fought every single foe there is in existence universally, including every kind of ethnic indifference and division there is. So let's not, you and I, resurrect what he killed. Life in him is too good to aim at less. Blood bought is thicker than blood born. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. We'll sing and be dismissed. Father, thank you for that truth and others that stand out to us from this passage. We pray that we will remember from this passage what you want us to remember and that we will attend to that which we need to attend to. Lord, we need to respond to what you're doing, to the encouragement that you give us. Encouragement is for soaking in, but then we uh, move out from it with renewed strength and refreshment. We thank you for what you're doing for us and in us in Christ and through us and that you get glory for yourself in arranging the church the way you have. We thank you that you have brought us in on this, for we are most unworthy ourselves. But we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.